Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Anesthesia Clerkship Podcast. My name is Blake Burney. I'm a first-year anesthesia resident at the University of British Columbia. And my name is Sandy Wu. I'm a third-year medical student also at the University of British Columbia. On today's episode, we're going to discuss pediatric anesthesia, focusing on general anesthesia. We'll start by talking about the preoperative period and progress through the intraop and postop period. The majority of this episode will focus on children roughly older than one year old, as the complex physiological differences of a neonate is a whole world of its own and beyond the scope of this podcast. However, if that's something you're interested in, let us know and we can try to put something together. As with all patient encounters in anesthesia, a preoperative consult, including a good Yample history, is crucial. We have an episode on the components of a preoperative history in one of our earlier episodes that you can refresh yourself on if you're feeling a bit rusty in this area. As for the why, why are you here, or why are you needing anesthesia? Of course, pediatric patients will need anesthesia for the same reasons as adults, that is, for sedation and pain management during surgical procedures. However, you may notice sometimes there are procedures that normally would not require GA in an older adult or adult that is done under GA in children because they may be too young or their developmental level limits cooperation. In peds, it's also important to pay close attention to any significant prenatal history, such as if they were born premature, if there were any significant events in the neonatal period, any congenital conditions or syndromes, as well as if they've reached expected developmental milestones. It's also important to note if any of these have been investigated, and also pay particularly close attention if they have had any personal or any family history of reactions to anesthetics. Childhood conditions that require careful monitoring include central or obstructive sleep apnea, adenal tonsillar hypertrophy, functional macroglossia due to hypertrophy of the tongue, such as in trisomy 21, or hypomandibularism, any neurological impairments, muscular dystrophy, or cyanotic heart disease, any of which can have large implications on airway management or anesthetic plan. Feeling hungry sucks, but even more in children, which can leave you with a very irritable patient, and prolonged fasting can also cause dehydration and hypoglycemia. However, this is balanced with the risk of coming to the OR before an anesthetic on a full stomach where there is a risk for aspiration. At BC Children's Hospital, the fasting guidelines are to allow diet as tolerated until midnight the night before the procedure. After midnight, if the child drinks formula, this must be stopped six hours prior to arriving at Children's. Breast milk is allowed up to four hours before arrival and clear fluids such as water or apple juice are allowed up until one hour before arrival. Of course, emergency surgeries can happen, in which case patients won't be fasted and an anesthesiologist may opt to do a rapid sequence induction, or RSI, to minimize aspiration risk. Of note, these fasting guidelines vary between hospitals, so it's best to check your local institution for what their fasting guidelines are. Okay, uh, so at this point we're through the pre-anesthetic consult. This podcast is obviously aimed at the clerkship level. However, I think a good way to organize today's episode is a similar way how staff will ask me about the cases that are on the slate for the day. Often, we frame these as anesthetic considerations, meaning things that we need to consider when we're making our anesthetic plan. I actually pulled the following list uh, from an app that was created by one of my fellow UBC residents here, and uh, it's called Anesthesia Considerations. I'm going to leave the link to that website in the episode description, I don't have any personal affiliation or financial ties or whatever, but uh, I found this app super helpful during my fourth year electives, and I actually continue to use it on pretty much a daily basis. Either way, for the pediatric patient, the things that we need to consider are one, altered airway anatomy, two, 
increased risk for laryngospasm, three, rapid desaturation on induction, four, increased vagal tone and increased potential for bradycardia, five, rate-dependent cardiac output, which we'll define in a minute, six, the possibility of an uncooperative patient, which we've already touched on, and finally, seven, altered pharmacokinetics and dynamics, namely that you'll have an increased MAC requirement and that PEDS patients have immature livers and immature kidney function. That's a little in-depth, and we're not going to talk about that anymore, but it's worthwhile knowing. You may have noticed that I tried to organize those the way that I approach all disease or patient-specific considerations. I usually move from the airway to the breathing, to the cardiac, to drugs and disability, and then to E, which you can put as everything else. It's kind of a cop-out, but it still manages to keep me organized. So we'll carry on with this ABCDE approach for the remainder of this episode. So Sandy, why don't you take it from here? Okay, let's talk about some ABCs, starting with the airway. There are five key differences in relative anatomy compared to adults. First, PEDS patients have a much bigger head relative to the body. So when you are laying the child down flat in the supine position, their heads tend to flex forward more, closing off the airway. The larynx is also more cephalad and anterior at the C3 to 4 level rather than the C4 to 6 level in adults. You will need to tilt the head further back with more support to straighten the airway and align the oral, pharyngeal, and laryngeal axis. Third, they have a larger and shorter tongue relative to their mouths and may also have larger tonsils and adenoids, which can complicate intubation. Fourth, their epiglottis is longer, narrower, and tends to be floppier than adults. And lastly, the narrowest part of the airway in young children is below the glottis, in the subglottic region at the level of the cricoid cartilage. Together with the smaller anatomy overall, these can make it more challenging to visualize the vocal cords and thus preparation and proper positioning is crucial. A couple more points on intubation in the pediatric patient is uh, you may have come across straight laryngoscope blades. These are called Miller blades, and as opposed to your traditional curved Macintosh blades, which are probably kind of the traditional one that you have in your mind, the straight Miller blade is actually used to pin the floppier and larger epiglottis up so it doesn't get in the way as you're trying to like visualize the vocal cords, as opposed to the Macintosh blade, which you slide along the tongue uh, to the base of the tongue called the vollecula, and that allows you to lift upwards and pull the epiglottis out of view. Also, as Sandy mentioned, uh, the narrowest part of the airway is the cricoid in peds, which is slightly different than in adults, uh, although that might be a little bit up for debate depending on what paper you read. Uh, regardless, the point is, is that functionally, when you're intubating a child, you may be able to pass the tube between the vocal cords and the larynx, and then you can get caught up. Um, whereas this doesn't really happen in an adult, that if you're trying to pass the tube and you're able to get it through the cords in the adults, usually the tube will always continue to thread through. Um, the key here is to recognize that you have become obstructed when you're intubating a PEDS patient. Uh, you do not want to injure the mucosa by trying to force this tube in. So if you were worried and potentially you had maybe a bit of a difficult airway in this PEDS patient, and now you're realizing that your tube is too big, you can use a bougie, uh, which is a small um, a tube that basically goes inside of your endotracheal tube and maintains your position. And then you can 
pull out the tube and then insert a smaller tube. Alternatively, like if the airway is just super straightforward, you can just ask for a smaller tube and then put the smaller tube in. And speaking of tube sizes, Sandy, can you remind us how do we estimate the size of an endotracheal tube again? To calculate a cuffed endotracheal tube size, you take the patient's age in years, divide it by four, and add 3.5. So for a six-year-old, you take that divided by four, add 3.5 to get a five millimeter tube. For an uncuffed tube, you just add another 0.5. There are two common airway complications in pediatric patients. First is the post-intubation laryngeal edema, sometimes called post-intubation croup, and the incidence can be as high as 1%. This presents as the characteristic inspiratory strider, barking cough, hoarseness, and inspiratory dyspnea, and can develop from immediately after extubation to two to three hours later. The risks for this include a tight endotracheal tube, overinflation of the cuff, traumatic tracheal intubation or repeated attempts at intubation, or just younger age. Treatment is typically with nebulized epinephrine to reduce the edema and dexamethasone. The effects of the epinephrine last around 2-3 to three hours, after which symptoms may recur since the effects of dexamethasone don't quite kick in until then. So the patient will need to be monitored for a few hours before you plan on discharging them home. The other more common complication in children, although it still happens in adults, is laryngospasm. As the name implies, it occurs when the vocal cords involuntarily spasms, typically in response to a trigger such as secretions or water or stimulation by foreign objects like an endotracheal tube, and this is a protective mechanism against having something enter the airway. Laryngospasm is more common if the child has or is recently recovering from an upper respiratory tract infection. To diagnose this, you may hear high-pitched sounds like the inspiratory strider progressing to silence with paradoxical breathing, where the chest and abdomen are moving in opposite directions, or a tracheal tug as the spasm closes off the airway. If it occurs, it is most common during extubation or just prior to intubation during an anesthetic gas induction. For extubation, it's more common in cases that were maintained with our volatile agents, and of note is more common with desflurane than sevenflurane. It is less commonly seen in cases that have been maintained with propofol, known as a total intravenous anesthesia, or TIVA for short. TIVA is an interesting topic and worth a whole podcast episode to itself. We'll talk about that on a later date. So, once laryngospasm is recognized, it's important to immediately provide oxygen via bag mask if possible, perform a strong jaw thrust as the stimulation may stop the spasm, and if needed, provide succinylcholine to paralyze the patient, which will stop the spasm, or propofol to increase the depth of anesthesia. Of note, uh, with pediatric patients, when we're discussing laryngospasm on extubation, there's two methods that we can try to reduce the chances of having this laryngospasm on extubation. And this is either to extubate them when the patient is quote-unquote deep, meaning that you can still stimulate them, you could shake them, they're not going to respond. Or, alternatively, you could extubate them when they are totally awake. They are obeying commands, and when you ask them to squeeze your hand, they will be able to do so. It's when you're kind of in between these two zones, uh, in this area that we call them kind of light, where you might be able to stimulate them a little bit, but they're not totally awake, uh, this is the area where you can get into trouble with laryngospasm. This is actually the reason that propofol works. Uh, it's because if you've extubated them when they're kind of 
quote-unquote in-between, uh, you can deepen them up and then try again while they're deeper and uh, allow them more time to blow off, meaning kind of like breathe off that extra residual anesthetic gas that might still be on board if you maintained them on something like sevoflurane. And then uh, while they're deep, you're able to take the tube out while they're not having that laryngospasm. Phew, that was a lot. Okay, so next let's talk about B for breathing. While relative static lung volumes in children are somewhat similar to that of adults, it's important to note that they have a lower functional residual capacity, which is the FRC, and thus lower oxygen reserve. Additionally, children have a much higher metabolic rate, so they'll use up the oxygen faster than in adults. This is important to note because the pre-oxygenation phase that buys a safe apnea time for us to intubate and secure the airway becomes much more important in kids than someone who's 25 and healthy. Additionally, since children have less reserve and use up the reserve faster, this safe apnea time decreases significantly. This means you have less time to intubate and have a lower threshold to returning to bag masking. All right, I'll quickly run us through the C, uh, which you can use for cardiac or circulation or whatever fits your acronym. Uh, without going too deeply into the physiology, children's cardiac output is different than a healthy adult in that it is rate dependent. And what I mean by that is if we go back to our formula for cardiac output, which is cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate, it means that in children, the stroke volume is relatively fixed, and this is because their heart is still developing. So in order for them to maintain their output and therefore their perfusion, children rely on their heart rate. This can be problematic because during surgery, pediatric patients have increased vagal tone and then have this propensity towards bradycardia. And if the heart rate drops, you can have insufficient perfusion to your vital organs and then uh, sometimes even cardiac arrhythmias or cardiac arrest. To combat this, we often use atropine, which is an anticholinergic, which increases the heart rate by blocking the muscarinic receptors in the heart and essentially opposes the vagus nerve stimulus. This increases the SA node rate, effectively increasing the heart rate. Intubation is one of those procedures that are very vaguely stimulating. And you'll sometimes see people give atropine as a pre-medication right before intubation to combat this bradycardia. Next is D for drugs. First, with pre-oxygenation, I've noticed that many kids don't like the smell of the mask itself. So a trick I picked up from a staff is to use flavored or scented chapstick and just kind of rub it on the inside of the mask, which kind of gives the mask a different scent and it takes the edge off of that plasticky smell. Now with induction methods, if your kiddo's not going to tolerate any form of needles well, you can use an inhalational induction. This will be done with sevoflurane because desflurane and isoflurane not only have a pungent smell but are very irritating agents to the airway, which may lead to breath holding, coughing, or possibly laryngospasm. If you're lucky and have a cooperative patient or a very skilled team who are able to start an IV, you can use a standard IV induction. However, you'll need the IV in already, which can be quite distressing for children. Some practitioners like to use a lidocaine gel 15 to 20 minutes before inserting the IV to numb the area, and others may choose to use some light sedation with something like oral or intranasal midazolam to help facilitate the IV insertion. Once the IV is in and you've pre-oxygenated, 
Propofol can be used, and it's a great agent for reliability and fast onset. I have also seen some staff choose to use ketamine first to sedate the patient if parents are in the room, as it's less painful when being injected into the vein, not associated with respiratory depression, so the patient can protect their own airway through the initial sedation, and if needed, you can also give it intramuscularly. Ultimately, the choice of agent, whether that be IV induction or gas induction, will depend on personal preference, comfort level, patient tolerance, and the patient's past anesthetic history or potential complications that you might be concerned about. Other things that we want to consider under the D category is dextrose or dehydration. When fasting for a procedure, children are much more prone to dehydration and hypoglycemia. It's important to provide maintenance fluids throughout the procedure following the 4-2-1 rule. A quick recap for this, you give 4 milliliters per kilo for the first 10 kilos of body weight, 2 milliliters per kilo for the next 10, and 1 milliliter per kilo for the rest of their weight. So for example, a 25 kilogram child would require 40 milliliters for the first 10 kilos, 20 milliliters for the next 10 kilos, and 5 milliliters for the last 5 kilos for a total of 65 milliliters per hour. As children often have been fasting anywhere from 4 to 8 hours, you may need to correct for any dehydration, which includes giving a possible bolus or increasing the fluid rate. You can use fluid responsiveness signs to determine how much you want to give and what you want to do, but that's outside of today's scope. It's an interesting topic, though. Now, E for environment. Children have a greater surface area to body weight ratio. They also have much less insulating sub-Q fat compared to adults. And lastly, they're less able to thermoregulate, especially when they're under anesthesia. This means they can become hypothermic much faster if they're exposed. So it's important to make sure that the child is properly covered and a warming source is provided if needed, such as a forced warm air blanket like a bear hugger. It's also important to have a temp probe to monitor the child's body temperature throughout the procedure as hypothermia increases metabolic demands on the body and can contribute to hypoglycemia as well. Finally, moving on to our post-op period, one common complication that occurs more frequently in the pediatric population than in adults is emergence delirium. There's a wide range of reported incidence rates anywhere from 10 to 80%. It's usually self-limiting, typically 10 to 15 minutes after emerging from anesthesia, but can last up to an hour and can be very distressing and possibly harmful to the child. Just imagine this. You wake up, you're confused, you don't know where you are, you don't have to control your body, and in kids, this just might be a lot worse because they're not able to rationalize or understand why they underwent anesthesia in the first place. This may present as an inconsolable child who's crying, thrashing, moaning, or incoherent. I once had a case where a patient woke up with this southern peach accent and a new identity, although the parents had no idea where she got that from because they don't remember her having ever heard a southern accent before. Suspected etiologies include intrinsic factors of the anesthetic, like it's more common with inhalational agents, post-op pain, younger age, perioperative anxiety, child temperament, or effects of any adjunct medications. This is usually self-limiting, but if needed, you can manage with opioids for pain, midazolam or Presidex for anxiety, or propofol for a little bit more sedation and a smoother emergence. Rarely, you can get a paradoxical reaction to midazolam where it ends up causing agitation instead of calming down the kiddo. If this is suspected, you can try to use flumazenil, which is the reversal agent for benzos, to try to reverse the midaz. 
Random note, this is a great tip for your merge rotations as well. Flumazenil reverses benzos. So if the parents are present and they saw your kiddo go into some crazy freak out, it's important to reassure them that it's very common in kids and that everything is okay. Emergence delirium is very common, it's self-limiting, and we can help the kids feel a little bit better using our various agents that we just mentioned. Of course, as in all patients, post-op nausea and vomiting is a very common complication. This is even more common in pediatric populations. If you haven't already, go check out our previous episode on post-op nausea and vomiting for all the details. Okay, this is getting to be a long episode. Let's quickly summarize. It's important to take a good Yample history, like with all pre-anesthetic consults. We want to take particular care in paying attention to the prenatal birth history, looking for any congenital or childhood conditions, personal or family history of reactions to anesthetics, and any conditions that could contribute to difficult airway. Next, in that preoperative period, a pre-medication with something like midazolam can be a very useful tool for pediatrics to facilitate IV insertion, pre-oxygenation, and or induction. There are five key differences in the pediatric airway. They have larger heads that are more prone to flexing forward, closing off the airway when they're in that supine position. They have shorter tracheas and their larynx is more cephalad and anterior. They have larger tongues. Their epiglottis is more floppy and larger and the narrowest part of the airway is below the cricoid cartilage. Next, peds have less oxygen reserve, and they use up their oxygen reserve much faster, meaning that they have less safe apneic time and desaturate faster. Children also have rate-dependent cardiac output with a propensity for bradycardia, which can be a scary combo. Remember, you can treat bradycardia with atropine. Common options for induction drugs are sevoflurane if you're doing a gas-only induction, or propofol or ketamine for more standard IV inductions. PEDS patients lose body temperature faster and are more prone to dehydration and hypoglycemia. Emergence delirium can be common in the pediatric population, so careful monitoring and support during the emergence period is important. Remember, usually this is self-limiting, but sometimes requires pharmacological intervention. Finally, post-intubation croup or laryngeal edema can occur in up to 1% of patients, especially if a larger endotracheal tube was used or there was a traumatic intubation or multiple attempts at intubation. If this occurs, we can treat this with nebulized epinephrine and sometimes dexamethasone. We have to monitor for resolution of symptoms to ensure that there's no recurrence prior to discharging home. That wraps up this episode. As always, if you have any feedback, comments, or corrections, please feel free to reach out to us via email. Uh, the email address is anesthesiaclerkship at gmail.com, and that'll be in the show notes uh, along with the references. Uh, thanks for listening, and until next time, best of luck on your rotation. See you later.